We couldn't have a better person to talk about all things Chinese than Jeremy Barmay, who's uh, a sinologist and he's one of Australia's uh, leading sinologists. And so I think that it would probably be valuable, um, Jeremy, when I look up at your name there, and I think there ain't much Chinese about that. <laughs> In fact, I wonder what's, what the name is. It's a, it's, it, it, what sort of is the background of the name Jeremy Barmay? Well, it could be McNabb, I guess. It's my mother's name. <laughs> my mother's a McNabb. So that's Scots? And Scots. My father's family were um, German Jews. Who came that's where the Barmay is. Yeah. Except that they spent years after the expulsion from, um, from uh, Spain in France, and they ended up in Alsace-Lorraine, where they had to have a surname. Well, they put the acute on the end of it. Oh, I see. My grandmother always told me that the Barmay came from the German word Berm, which means... Uh, means um, uh, an agent for making beer, frothy. <laughs> but I once remarked on this in public, on, on the radio actually, and my father was furious. Whoever told you that? Oh, really? Your mother did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the story I have that's from my name. father. Yeah. So what's, when, when did the interest in China come for you? Where did it come from? Well, uh, we, many of people of my generation are creatures of the 60s. I was born in 54. So in the early 60s and mid-60s, so many people I knew were interested in, well, the, the twin things. One was the, the, the North, uh, what was then called the Far East, the North or Northwest, um, uh, India and China and Southeast Asia. And also interested in all those incredible social changes happening around the world. The Vietnam War was a huge issue for many of us. And, and the issues related to revolution and the Chinese culture revolution was something I was interested in. One of the reasons that I got interested in China Contemporary channels, I had a, a, a classmate in high school, Samson Vorong, great name as well, he, who, who was, uh, loved ham radio and was constantly listening to broadcasts from all over the world. He came to school one day, I must have been 13, and he said, I've been listening to these crazy people in Peking, <laughs> people with Peking radio. And you know, it's just, my God, it was 1966. When you heard the words cultural revolution before you went, what did you understand? Well, it sounded great. You know, <laughs> 1960s, the word boring eastern yeah. suburbs, Sydney, I grew up in Double Bay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With all the appropriate you know, matrons and masters of the area, you know, grew up in one of those you know, typical middle class families. But I went to school at, at Randwick, out at Randwick, because my, our father withdrew us from Crownbrook. We were going to Crownbrook, but he thought it was too corrupting <laughs> to go to a private school. And the idea of you know, anti-establishmentarianism, you know, revolution, change, opposition to the Vietnam War, that sounded great. At the same time, all my, many of my friends were interested in, you know, there were dope addicts and into drugs and stuff, and interested in Eastern mysticism, Timothy Leary, mm. the whole wild world of so what was happening. You... So that's the two tracks is probably, not the drug side of things, others of my friends went into that, but the two tracks of the, the, far, the East as representative of something more numinous, abstract, bizarre of the spirit and the radical politics of the day both appeal to me and my team. So that was sufficient for you to go and to mm -hmm. ANU and study... Um... Well, no, I went to ANU to study Sanskrit. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, <laughs> Had you been to China at this no, 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 no. Right, okay. I, I, was, I was in high school and China was fascinating, but I got interested in Eastern mysticism and Sanskrit and Pali and, and I started learning Pali by myself and Prakrit and things like that. And um, if you want to study stuff to do with um, Eastern philosophy, you have to study Buddhism and get some idea of what was going on there. And Sanskrit appealed, and it was that 
interesting in classical language. I was interested in Latin and Greek as well. So and when did you start learning Chinese? Same time, Sanskrit. I did an undergraduate course in ANU. I had to so either New England or New England University or, or, um, or ANU, which had Sanskrit and Chinese. New England didn't have Chinese. So I turned to ANU and they said, well, if you're going to do classical Chinese, because I wanted to study class the classic kind of Sanskrit, they said, you have to do three years of modern Chinese. I said, I don't want to learn modern Chinese. I don't care anything about it. You know, revolution is nice, but, but you know, <laughs> so I didn't want to do it, but I had to. I was forced to do modern Chinese, and I went to my first modern Chinese class in 1972, walked into the classroom, and the teacher of, of Chinese one at ANU was Pierre Rickmans, oh. Simon Leibis, and he taught me, how are you, Mr. Mr. Gao, my first Chinese sentence, and Pierre Rickmans of Simon Leibis is one of the great one of the greatest writers on, on China, traditional and modern on Chinese art history. He was one of the has been one of the greatest commentators on Chinese society and politics as well has. over the last forty years. A brilliant stylist and also an incredibly charismatic, engaging teacher who never separated between the modern and the classical, between the ancient and the and um, and the contemporary. Somebody who introduced us from our first classes in just you know the word how good in Chinese. Analyzing the character and then using it, he said, "This, of course, this character occurs in a very famous poem in China's most famous novel." And then wrote the poem on the on the blackboard. Kind of, we were all completely illiterate, you know. Nineteen, I was seventeen, and there's a poem from the Dream of the Red Chamber, whatever that was. And he began teaching us not only how to say "How are you," but also how this relates to one of the greatest poems of late Chinese dynastic history. Oh. And that's how I was taught Chinese by him and a number of other teachers who were completely at home in both the contemporary and in the classical. How long did it take you to feel at home in the language? Oh God, years, years. <laughs> I did three years a day, or two years, two, two, two thirds a year, because in my third year I got a scholarship to go to China, and that was in 1974, which was during what is now visible, given the fact that many of you might have noticed in the news recently, there was a an announcement that uh, a large statue of Confucius was put up in Tiananmen Square outside the newly refurbished Chinese National Museum, a sort of celebration of this great venerated figure in Chinese letters and culture. Um, it's been taken down subsequently during what has not been called the power struggle, but some sort of unpleasant internal altercation that China specialises in. It's been removed, <laughs> but Tim Mao still hangs over Tiananmen, and the statue was facing west, and Tim Mao's over there, and people got upset by it, and they removed the statue. But I went to China in the year that, um, at the height of what was called the anti, the criticised Lin Biao and anti-Confucius campaign, when there was a nationwide denunciation of Confucius. So the Cultural swing. Revolution was still in full swing, because he was well, still alive. It's what, it depends on how you see the Cultural Revolution is, is a period, People's Republic of China was founded in 1949, and in 1966 Mao formally launches, although it began actually a bit earlier, a thing that was called the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, one of those wonderful Chinese mouthfuls. <laughs> in Chinese it's just called Wenger for short, so <laughs> nobody can be bothered to say the full name. Um, it was formally, the Chinese authorities have, have dated the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 76. So I was formally, I lived in two years of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. In, if you're a historian like I am, there's a lot of debate about whether the people argued ended in 69, in 71, in 78. So yes, but I went there in the Cultural Revolution period. Were your first impressions positive? Were, they, were you, did you embrace the whole thing immediately? Did you feel... 
comfortable? Well, again, it goes back to one, my education. I was taught by Pierre Rickmans and Professor Lewitzer in classical Chinese, modern Chinese. Pierre went away for our second year because he was he went actually went to establish the Belgian cultural office for the Belgian embassy in Peking. So he was away for that year, and he was replaced um, by Colin McCarris, a very well-known scholar of China, and Chinese opera and Chinese ethnicity. And Colin was very pro-cultural revolution, and he taught us cultural revolution era revolutionary opera, and also a lot about the language and the, the usages in China of the cultural revolution and progressive thought. And that was extremely appealing, as was all the other stuff I'd been studying. And when I went to China, I'd already been prepped to at least be able to read and understand communist-style Chinese, because Chinese is a, that's a language that has been written Chinese in its present form, has been used. Um, well, people who are familiar with and comfortable with written Chinese, really educated Chinese people today, mostly find more of them generally in terms of the classical tradition in Taiwan and Hong Kong, sometimes in the mainland, but they have access to a language that has been in this similar written form for over 2,000 years. And so the language in daily use can draw on any of the literature or ideas or usages from that 2,000-year-old period, as until the 19th century would be common for Western um, thinkers, writers, politicians, drawing on Latin or Greek, mm. thought and literature, similar type of, of thing. Um, and so Colin introduced us to the very particular language of the communist era, which is very, very particular. The communists today, when, when you see on TV, you might see that wretched woman, Jiang Yu, who's the foreign affairs spokeswoman, who's got that sort of helmet of hair, who speaks like something out of Mars Attack. So then they come, don't worry about it. She speaks that voice, the voice, culture, the, she speaks in, the, in cultural revolution light, Chinese. Um, but she speaks the language that I first, that communist language that I learned, was very different from the Taiwanese inflected Chinese that I also learned, and different from the Hong Kong. Mandarin Chinese that I know. So it's a different language or is it's it different the vocabulary? Or is radically it... different vocabulary. It's like the Soviet Russian as compared to Russian Russian. Or is like there, Nazi is there German. A, is there an equivalent in English that we can... We haven't yet had the totalitarian. To <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm we can look for... To, I'm just trying to think. Is there... Is Cheney. <laughs> Dick Cheney would speak. <laughs> can you carry the back? Yeah. But it's that type of... It's like newspeak. George Orwell it's writes speak. it. It's yeah. a speak. George Orwell writes it in 1984. I understand. It's like that type yes, of. It's that very special diction in which everything is said in a highly formalized, staged way, but it mostly means something completely different, yeah. and you just have to be aware of the code. And so I went to into China where our students and friends, you know, our students that we know we didn't have any friends because we weren't like their friends of foreign, we, we were regarded as spies and agents, but where our, our Chinese students would speak to us both in the formal diction of communism, but then in private we speak this other language. Does it still happen? Oh, it can. You just have to press a button with a Chinese bureaucrat and <laughs> talk about Tibet or Xinjiang, <laughs> human rights. Blah! You get this. I'm not joking. It's just this, this stuff, this ready-formulated, highly-formulated, reams of it that can be chopped and cut to any length will just come pouring out of mouth. Sorry, I'm being very... No, no, flipped, it's, but it's, it's exactly actually, the feel. That it's actually yeah. um, the, the, the um, Dick Cheney suggestion. That I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that, 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 no, but it is that... And you just listen to it and you think, yeah, it sort of makes sense, but only if you actually believe what he's yes. talking about. Yes. And so I went to a China which said that Chinese was the Chinese. I later met... Was the Chinese of the streets? 
No, no, no. Well, most of you didn't hear Chinese in the streets because, like, in Beijing, where I first lived, and I lived in Shanghai and then in Shenyang, you didn't hear Chinese spoken except occasionally when you tried to buy something because people were terrified. People you mean they wouldn't talk? Yeah, you didn't hear. I'd go on buses and I'd, I'd desperate to hear somebody say something normal. You know? <laughs> and you could hear, I want to buy a ticket and five cents or whatever. But people wouldn't chat on the buses. Peking was silent. And it's, that's what's so, it's now impossible to, oh, to recapture that. I mean, there's friends in the audience, Jocelyn Che, who was in China at the time. She was in charge of us as students, and yeah. she was a great help and relief to all of us <laughs> desperate young Australians trying to make sense of this world. Yeah. But you didn't hear, you couldn't engage in casual conversation because it was forbidden. Amazing, yeah. amazing, amazing. Unbelievable. Now that the Chinese friends weren't, I wouldn't say weren't shut up. <laughs> China is a very voluble nation now. Did the Chinese authorities pay any attention to you at that time? Well, we were, we were, we were there. So we were four or five students in our, we were the second group of Australians who went to China after the normalisation of relations under Whitlam. Um, and there were five of us. And um, a few stayed in Peking and the rest went down to Shanghai. Two of us went down to Shanghai. We were, along with, um, there were some uh, British, French, German, Japanese students. We were isolated. We were always treated, especially as a special office in charge of us. We were regulated, under surveillance, constantly monitored. One of my favourite, not many, many favourite moments of surveillance, I was 21, had no idea. I was, I was came from a background, you know, a nice, well brought up, police and some of his work, who believes you have to go more than halfway to understand a different culture, so you have to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, no matter how glaringly crazy everything seemed. <laughs> and I read a lot of the negative stuff about China in the, in the press and thought, yeah, surely it can't be that bad. It took me years to realise how much worse it was, and even though I'd actually been there watching it. And, but, you know, I was How long were there? I was there for the first period for nearly four years. And why did you leave? Um, well, I applied to, I'd been first, I said, in Peking, then another year in Shanghai, then I went to northeast China, a place originally called Mukden, it was in the Manchu capital, later became a Chinese city, of course, Shenyang, it's the provincial capital of Liaoning province, outside the Great Wall. And it's still called, when you leave, go there, it's still, oh, you're going beyond the wall, meaning beyond the pale, in the northeast of China. And I was there for two years, and all my classmates were allowed to apply and go to a newly opened university in Nanjing or Nanking. Very beautiful city at the time. Now I think it's a dump, but it was very beautiful then. Um, a remnant beautiful from the old, from 1940s. And I tried to go, and I was told by the carders, well, by what was called the group in charge of us, was called the Mao Zedong Thought Propaganda Team that ran our university. The university was run by a revolutionary committee run by a Mao Zedong Thought Propaganda Team headed by a People's Liberation <coughs> Army um, general. And they just said, well, you know, your attitude, because I'd become, because my Chinese was among the best of our foreign students, I'd become a spokesperson for all the outrages that we experienced, you know, like, all these things, all these clashes we had with the authorities. So I had a bad attitude, and I was told I was, and I think it's the most accurate description ever, ever <laughs> articulated by they said I was a bourgeois anarchist. <laughs> and therefore, I did not have permission to change universities. I still had a year to go on my scholarship. But I was not given. I was refused permission to go to Nanking. Did they Nanjing. want you to leave the country, or did no, they... no, no? They just said you're going to stay here. You can stay here. You <laughs> can you start... listen to a bit more of this speech. You, well, we, this is just after the Cultural Culture Revolution ended in Mao Zedong died in September 1976, and then we were off our whole. At that time, this is in China, one of the best things about the Cultural Revolution period for foreign students is we were encouraged to participate in limited amounts of what they called open-door schooling, which meant you're allowed to go and work. You're, 
your studies had to be united with or correlate with practical engagement. And that meant that you get periods of stints in factories and, and communes working either with other workers or in communes. You're destroying industrial production or burning up agriculture. <laughs> so all students had to do this. And most of the Chinese students hated the thought of having to go back to a factory where they've just escaped to get to university. We were dying to get out of the universities and go and mix with real people who'd actually talk to us, which was wonderful. Because it was the only way anyone would actually talk to us normally. In these mm. So in the culture, when it ended, when Mao died, just after he died, we were off in, in a place in the Odong Peninsula, which is just in Liaoning province, also just near Darien or Dalian, um, Port Arthur used to be called in imperial days. Um, and we were there picking apples on a people's commune for export to the Soviet Union for hard currency. We were picking apples when the Gang of Four was arrested and the Cultural Revolution came from then. We then went back to our university in November 1976, and we had these textbooks for all, for all of our classes. We had the, a class in classical Chinese, classes in modern Chinese, modern Chinese literature, modern Chinese political and cultural struggles, a textbook dedicated to this, these issues, um, uh, the international labor movement, we had a special textbook there. And because the culture was ended, Mao was dead, and there was suddenly the government changed. I mean, they basically purged the Politburo. It was, a, it was basically what happened in 76 was a military coup, it's a junta. Um, by Hua Gofeng, supported by Ye Jianying, who was the head of the army, whose daughter later became a very close friend of mine, funnily enough. But we went back to school and we had these textbooks which were all edited by and produced by our universities. There were no national textbooks. Only each university could produce volumes for their students alone. We went back and then we began spending the next few months first crossing out with black pens the incorrect statements in our textbooks. <laughs> because the political lines started shifting everything, everything that we'd learned for years. The stuff I'd learned since I was in high school before, when Samson Voran first came and told me about Peking Radio and showed me Chinese propaganda magazines, everything began to fall to pieces. Mm. And this process, I didn't realise, I'm now aware of exactly what happened, the process that began in 76 went on until 1983. Everything, the whole Chinese communist worldview, its world, began to just crumble. And we sat in our classes as part of that, crossing up lines, then we'd have to rip we had to rip out chapters from the books. Because three months later, oh no, forget the whole chapter's gone. So you'd have to rip out the hand in the chapters. And then we'd have to hand when we had to hand in the textbooks. And I thought, I just don't want to sit here for the next year just relearning everything I've just learned yeah. and being bored by the people who all hate me because all the teachers, not all the teachers, some of the teachers are wonderful, but the people in charge of us, which is called the Foreign Affairs Office, different from the teachers, different from the students. They had control of the foreign students. Mm. They were punitive, and they, they always selected people who disliked foreigners to run foreigners. That has a logic to it. I so, I, so I left and went and worked in Hong Kong. I got a job in Hong Kong working for a Chinese-language magazine that ended up, only after I'd been working there for two years did I find out it had an underground party cell that controlled oh, <laughs> I can imagine, with That's an experience ridiculous. like that when you're 22, 23, 24... <laughs> That you might come back to Australia and say, well, I've got China out of my system. I'm, uh, going, to, I'm going to go and do something. Was it because you were fluent in the language or was it um, an accident or was it by design that you then went on to the position you are now, which is one of the country's leading scientists? Well, I don't know if it's quite... I don't know if I'm that, but I don't know if the leap is that simple. What happened was many things happened. But I learned in, in being engaged with China through classical studies and the contemporary and met many wonderful people in the 70s in China, 
my fellow students, one of whom now is still, many of them are very close friends, one, Marco Muller, now runs the Venice Film Festival, another, Isabel Hilton, runs the major um, environmental, um, Chinese environmental digest in, in London. Um, but at the end of the Cultural Revolution, I was introduced by a friend by the name of Patricia Wilson to um, a couple in Beijing, Yang Xianyi and Gladys Yang, China's, I didn't know then, I read some of their work with China's most famous translators into English. Gladys and Xianyi had only recently been released from incarceration. Xianyi had been four years in, in, um, in jail in Bambu Chao prison in Peking. Gladys had been in political prison in Qinchun, China's most famous political prison, in solitary confinement for four years. They both got out in 1971. I met them in 76, about five years later. And we got on very well, and they, for some reason, befriended this sort of, I don't know, hapless young Australian. And through them, from 76 onwards, and I, I got a job in Hong Kong in 77, I kept on going back to Beijing, they introduced me to their friends and their literary oh. and cultural world. Right. Um, so some of whom were fans, of it turns out, of Pierre Rickman's and Simon Leys. Was your interest then, does it, did it come from a background of an interest in politics or...? in history or in language or in art or in culture or what? I never saw any particular division between any of them. Okay. And I went to a China, and I think that many of the, the Chinese artists you encounter, in, in, in particular my generation, people in their 50s and onwards, are people who all had an education in a kind of philosophy and a politics and a society and literature and history and thought. As did Mao, I mean, Mao and his colleagues imposed a, a worldview in which all of these things were interconnected because politics was culture and culture was politics and philosophy and economics and international relations. They were all intertwined because of the nature both of Chinese-style Marxist-Leninist thinking, which is very much based on it, <coughs> but also because in Australia this is where there's constant overlap and conversation, the dialogical relationship within the Chinese world between the present and the past. In traditional Chinese society, letters, the world of learning, is one in which engaging with the world through practical governance and writing poetry and writing prose and engaging in abstract philosophical cogitation are all intertwined. Mm. And so under the Maoist era, strangely enough, this type of tradition, also because of the nature of Marxism-Leninism that, that sees class struggle and politics in every human action, yeah. continued this intertwining. And that's the world I was introduced to both in China, but even before that, by teachers. Um, Liu Chunren, my, my teacher of classical Chinese, was a famous playwright, a novelist, an expert in, in Taoism, a, a bibliophile, um, a wonderful writer in his own right of classical Chinese. And for him, these, there was, these divisions are, are useful academic pursuits, but they're not a meaningful way to approach human knowledge and engagement. Mm. And so for me, there was, I, I was educated like that from the age of 17, really. Right. That brings us. That brings me really right to the the centre in Canberra. I'd like. Can we talk about that now? The Australian Centre for China in the World. Is that right? Centre on, on China. Why is it? It's a funny title. Why, why is it the Centre on China in the World? When it's it's a it's a creation. It's a centre that was announced by Kevin Rudd um, in the last <laughs> the dying months of his prime ministership. And it was actually something that I'd been working on creating with colleagues long before he and I began talking about it. Um, that was to be particularly a, a centre that tried to, well, was concerned with training and supporting younger scholars who have this great awareness of the interrelatedness of 
ideas. Younger Australian scholars. Younger, Australian based, not just Australian, but Australian based scholars. Scholars who'd be in Australia or come to Australia or be Australian. Um, and when Kevin heard about this and became very excited at the thought of trying to support it in some way, um, we talked about names and all names of just, we'll end up with some boring, you know, China, China Research Centre, China Chinese World Engagement Centre, blah, blah, blah. We came up with a really tacky, difficult title anyway, and I apologise for it because that was my idea. <laughs> but it was, it was, the idea behind it was very simple in, that, in our conversation was that if we consider that now with the impact of, and I go, it's a very crude way of putting it, things Chinese, the way, the way that the Chinese, Chinese is part of the diasporic world community and has been for centuries, in fact. Those of us who live in Australasia and Southeast Asia know that China, the Chinese presence has been prominent for hundreds and hundreds of years, but also the diasporic Chinese communities are present everywhere in the world. But I said that that's one element of it, and Chinese is one of the world languages, the five yeah, um, uh, elected world languages of the UN. But also, if we take the Chinese experience, that is that world, which now we talk of in terms of the geopolitical territory of the People's Republic of China, but it's also Taiwan and Hong Kong and Macau and to an extent Singapore, and also the diaspora in Southeast Asia, which is very active, Chinese communities that use mostly often English or local languages. But there are particular things whereby meaning and sense is generated through a Chinese prison. That is, that's a, a Chinese, there are Chinese ways and complicated, um, um, multi, in Chinese, sort of multicultural ways of seeing the world that are different from the European based or the Middle Eastern based or Latin American based ways of seeing, seeing things or African based. And that's very interesting and important. However, more relevant to Australia is that with the huge rise of China economically in terms of trade relations and strategic importance and so on and so forth, we have to consider nearly every, in every major issue is discussed the Pacific, Southeast Asia, relations with America, the EU. It's now nearly inevitable that people start talking about what's the Chinese angle on this? Or what, how do we factor the China question into this discussion? Is that because China's become such a powerhouse economically? Economically, and also China's become, the People's Republic of China has become, has learned more and more, it has for many decades, but learned more and more how to assert itself in a way that is not only economically powerful, but also makes global sense as well. In terms of inst international institutions, the Chinese government wants to play a role that is now more befitting its economic status. But does China, does China insert itself into debates that occupy the rest of the world, like climate change, for instance, or, you know, the, the world, world, like the Middle East. We think, you know, that the world has things to say about the Middle East. We'll come to what China feels about it. In, but does it, does it make its position f uh, known on these world-debated issues? It, no, indeed it does. Or does and it remain aloof? No, no, it doesn't remain aloof. China has gone through phases of being aloof or not engaged. But the... And within, when we speak of China, or the Chinese government, we're talking about a multifarious, complex group of bureaucracies and interests and factions and alignments and, and concerns, oligarchs and bureaucrats and power holders, and all of them intertwined in very complex ways. So there are constant contending groups. And they, one of the reasons we call the center, the center of China in the world, is that if we think that considering the Chinese, the China, importance of things Chinese in all these major areas, how do we name a centre? 
that's concerned with the major disciplines from history and culture to economics and trade in the context of a university setting and the future. And how do we engage with a Chinese, um, official Chinese world that has a thought about everything and has a line on most things? And how do we do that in a way that makes it understandable, but also protects and preserves our sense of who we are and what our cultural, social, intellectual values are? Mm. And we chose the, the title Australian Center on China in the world because China is in the world. It's not just China's being this isolated particular thing, but the China, not only in the People's Republic, but the Chinese presence that is more than just the People's Republic. Yes, yes. And Do the Chinese have, does China have a view of this centre? Oh, well, China is in the Chinese. When the first thing we, we did was, well, actually, Kevin runs Morrison Lecture, in which he announced the speech, talked about what the centre was and what some of the underpinning ideas were, and that was very quickly translated into Chinese, and the Chinese authorities up to the highest level heard the message. They first heard a message from Kevin regarding what's been proposed as being a slightly different way of dealing with China. When Kevin gave a speech at Peking University on, and it is called Peking University, that's the correct name. The, the <laughs> official name is Peking University, it's not Beijing University. Um, and they still use the name Peking University. He gave a speech on um, 8th of April 2008, around the time of the uh, Tibetan uprising, or the uprising what I call Tibetan China. And in that speech he spoke about Tibet, human rights in Tibet. He also spoke of a concept called, that he said that we have to work out a relationship with the official world of China. This is not to say there's not, there are many Chinese worlds. There's many complicated Chinese realities as there are in any country or culture. Um, the Chinese government likes to present one monolithic Chinese story to the world called China's story. Um, which is, from my point of view, somewhat limiting, to be very polite. Anyway, Kevin said, if we talk, to talk beyond the relationship that the Chinese authorities have with the rest of the world, we need to move away from the Cold War, Cold War rhetoric of friendship and enemies. Either if we don't agree with everything the Chinese authorities say, then we're enemies of China or anti-China. Mm. We need to move in this period where China is important internationally in so many ways. It, we need to be able to discuss, debate, um, and engage in an equal fashion that will not lead our frank and direct discussions to us being labelled as enemies. Mm. How can we do that? And what Kevin did was he used the term one of my favourite terms, I would say, an ancient term that I first came across in 1978 when I worked in the Hong Kong magazine and bookshop, when they reprinted a Tang Dynasty work. Tang Dynasty is the 6th to the 9th century AD. A Tang Dynasty work called Zheng Guan Zhong Yao, which is the political principles of the Zheng Guan reign period. Zheng Guan reign in the Tang Dynasty is regarded as one of the great eras of flourishing openness and engagement in Chinese history, what's called a prosperous age, a shengzhi, mm. a very celebrated period. And in that book, there is an account of um, an advisor to the emperor, the emperor's Zhengguan, is its reign title, and his advisor, a guy called Wei Zhong, was daring enough to speak out against the emperor when he thought the emperor was wrong and foolish. And this advisor said that he was using a very ancient word. He said he was a zhengyou. Zhong is a Chinese word which means um, to be somebody who engages on the basis of principle yet opposes. And to be a Zhongyong is to be a, a companion, a friend, a, a collaborator, a, um, um, 
somebody who works with you who dares to tell you the truth, even though you might not like it. So Kevin used this very old word in his son, Peking University speech. And that night when they broadcast a bit of the speech in Chinese, because he gave it in Chinese, um, to this select Peking University audience. And it was a, a period of incredible um, tension. You might remember there had been a Tibetan uprising. There was international outrage at how the Chinese had responded. The Chinese authorities had carried out a, a massive and violent repression in, in Lhasa. Um, against, you know, the, the Lhasa uprising itself was bloody and violent and, and grim indeed. The Chinese authorities not only repressed the Lhasa uprising, but basically crushed riot uprisings throughout the Tibetan areas of China, and the Tibetan areas of China cover what used to be Amdo province, which is now called Qinghai province in China, part of Sichuan, part of Yunnan, and all of what's called the Tibetan Autonomous Regions. This whole Tibetan area had blown up. And at that time, Kevin had just heard from people in America, and really just seen George Bush and Angie Merkel and Nick Sarkozy, and he'd seen them all, and they'd all said, you know, because of these problems, they probably shouldn't or couldn't go to the opening ceremony of the Olympics which, as you could imagine, at that time would have caused incredible, this is China's moment of pride and glory. It would have been a huge disaster on every level. So Kevin, on one level, was giving this speech in Beijing to try and say a few things so that um, it dealt with some of the international tensions and gave all these other leaders some excuse to say, oh, well, somebody's dead, address these issues, therefore we can think a way out of our present dilemma with China, we should go and actually attend the Olympics and be supportive. Anyway, the night that Kevin's bit of Kevin Speaker's broadcast on Central TV, I was much amused to know that Central TV is like the organ of the people's government, except they all speak in this very... Like the ABC. Yeah, except, <laughs> except, except not left-leading like the ABC. <laughs> it's the Communist Party, you know, they're pack of conservative neoliberals. Um, but they have this voice, this very stentorian type of tone. And they had little Kevin up there speaking in Chinese, and because they, they always do this with foreigners, they had Chinese characters, because they're not understand what he's saying, the Chinese characters, and when they used, when he went through the, his explanation of the word Zhongyo, because Zhongyo, the word hasn't been used since the you know, early 50s, the last Zhongyo, appeared in the 50s, a really bad, uh, suffered a bad fate, um, they got the word wrong, they used the incorrect word for Zhong, it's a very academic point, but immediately <laughs> imagine thousands of people reading up Central TV and saying, what the hell are you people, do you illiterate fools? And the next broadcast, they corrected the character, and then the next day there were numerous articles trying to explain what this word oh, meant. Much <laughs> amused. Kevin telling the Chinese it's it, but that, but those, But that, that concept, of, again, go back to the, the centre and the, Kevin's announcement of it, he, he used this concept of Zhongyo, which is how does one, if we're dealing with a China that's part of the mature international global environment, whether it's to do with politics or trade, strategic negotiation or climate change, whatever it is, China is a major factor in all these things. Mm -hmm. And because of the collapse of the Bretton Woods Agreement, the post, post-1940s, um, using what they call the Washington Consensus, if there is to be a new world order, I mean, not for me, I'm not a specialist in any of these areas, but if there is, the Chinese and the Indians and the Brazilians and the Russians, all these people will have a great role, but the Chinese at the moment, because of the strength of this economy and the relatively directed nature of the Chinese polity, that it can speak in a unitary fashion about itself, with dire consequences for anybody, and we'll talk about in a moment about Ai Weiwei, anybody who doesn't fit into that consent, so-called consensual opinion, then how does one engage, in, engage with that world in a way that just dares to say, we appreciate, understand, engage with your society, civilization, your needs, your resentments, your frustrations, but 
we are not going to change the way we are either. Mm. And therefore, we have to work out a way of not only talking to each other the, beyond the boring diplomatic niceties, but also growing in a shared environment yeah, yeah. in a way that's meaningful. And the centre is based on that type of idea. How do you... You mentioned Ai Weiwei just then, and mm. he, uh, we have a special connection with Ai Weiwei at this gallery because mm. in 2008, wasn't it, Jane? Yes. The, one of the very first of, the, of these art installations. He was the first, it was Ai Weiwei, who has been missing for, I think, 43 days. Um, he disappeared on when he was going to board a flight to Hong Kong. He's one of China's most prominent artists. He's an amazing human being. What do you think has become of him? Oh, well, I don't know what they call... He, well, they're not only 43 days, they've also... Past in terms of change, always gone. They were what they did, calling typical new speak statements after Weiwei disappeared. They said that um, Ai Weiwei shouldn't think that he can hide behind the law. We're going to do horrible things to him. Um, Are they doing horrible things? No, no, I don't think they'd be doing horrible things. It would be highly uncharacteristic given who Weiwei is. I should say, I call him where I've known Ai Weiwei since 19. 78. He knew his father. I, I was introduced to his father, his mother, and him by Gladys Young, the woman I just mentioned in 1978, just after they'd been brought back from exile in Xinjiang. And where we have not seen each other on and off all these many decades. And just to put him in context, for those of you who don't know, he, he's an architect and an artist, and he designed the bird's nest at the Olympic Games. Well, he offered ideas that led to the reconceptualization, yeah. led to the bird's nest being the way it looked. And he's also yeah. a champion blackjack player. He, he's, right. Isn't he? He's got a he's a fantastic jack. Anyway, he's so a he, character. He's yeah. a, he's, an, um, yeah, he's the type of person. And when I first spoke about Young Fudong's work, Fudong has done this extraordinary work called Seven Intellectuals in the Bamboo Grove, the Bamboo Garden. And Young Fudong's work was a contemporary work, and it's it's, you know, it's a long and, and and carefully thought out and rather. Um, mesmeric kind of creation, very beautiful, parts of it are stunningly beautiful, and also parts are ironic and strange and silly and purposeful juxtapositions make you discomfort and all that type of thing. But he's also, by using this, the, the title of uh, uh, the seven intellectuals, or the traditional translation, the seven scholars in the bamboo growth, Young Fudum was referring back to a period, you'll see how this is relevant to yes. where we're waiting about but it's, it's a reference in the Chinese world. You have to go, always go back a long way to get up to the present. It's just one of those places that requires that. Um, from the Wei Jin period, this is a dynasty, a period of two dynasties, dynastic transition, the third, fourth centuries. And there was a, a, it's a period noted for many things political corruption, appalling assassinations, and murders, and all the usual types of mayhem that go along with, with political chaos. But it's also a period of an extraordinary kind of cultural efflorescence. It's when a period, and we've got two very prominent scholars who work have written and, and translated work from that period in the audience today, so I shouldn't be talking about it at all. But it's, it's a period in which some of the most interesting and quirky characters in Chinese, um, and I can't say literature because they're more than just, they're, they're musicians and political, engaged political figures as well as writers, as well as just bon vivants and difficult people. That's difficult, unpleasant. They're called guaijie in Chinese. It's a word that means un uncomfortable, idiosyncratic, uncomforting, discomforting. You know, people you like eccentrics. You'd, eccentrics you'd like to read about, but would never like to meet. Mm. <laughs> and there were seven of these people who said to you know, 
colleagues as friends and so on and so forth. And it's interesting that the whole modern Chinese art movement that sort of really burst into the into the uh, on the, into the Chinese world first. It took a long time to be recognised internationally. Weiwei was a member of the first the group that first was involved in, in developing the new art or giving expression to new cultural impetuses in the late 1970s. Um, but in the early 1980s, one of China's, a man who became China's most prominent cultural conservative said, all of this stuff, all this new art and culture and stuff, it's all just a repetition of the Weijin period. And if we're going to allow this stuff with these outspoken individuals and garish art and strange poetry and disheveled appearances of people, we're going to end up with the chaos and social confusion and anime that we had in the way we had in the Wei Jin period. This is a guy in 1983 writing about 420 AD. That's, but this is how people talk. They connect to their history. Completely. So it's not a joke. It's a real evocation. It's a real... And people sort of like it. It is a culture that can do that sometimes clumsily, but sometimes it's completely and utterly part of the way people talk. And... Um, Weiwei is one of these people who, he's like a character from the Weijin period. He is, this is an unpleasant person. In, I see. No, 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 I get off fine with But he's one of those people who, he's just going to be difficult because, you know, fuck you. Mm. Is mm. um, it's his attitude, he uses the word frequently. And he has gone he from He paints being, it on his body. And he paints yeah. it on his body. <laughs> so there's a wonderful picture of him that was reprinted in Hong Kong recently in the big formal denunciation of him which shows him in front of Tiananmen Square with the word fat written on his chest. And the article goes into details and gives every Chinese dialectical version of the word. <laughs> but he didn't use any of these words. He used the English word to insult us. Do they see him as a threat? Well, Weiwei's done the other. He's done the other. Weiwei's part, and I've, I've written about this, in terms of quite recently, he's part of a 20th century tradition of people who just cannot, they put up with the authoritarian, paternalistic, self-important control of the powers that be, whether they were the late Qing dynasty or the Republican period people or the Maoist bureaucrats or cadres or the contemporary Chinese harmonizers, those who rule harmonious, rising China. And they think, well, fuck you. Who, who, you are not elected. You control and marshal all public opinion. You ban people from protesting this, that, and the other. You abuse basic human rights. You pretend that you don't. You pretend that the Chinese are somehow uniquely incapable of even wanting basic rights or freedoms. Who are you? And he's just one of those people who's been, over the years, he's gone from being relatively, he's obstreperous. I had a book... Yeah, I was working in 1999, in which he gave me a work for an artwork for it, and I loved it because it summed up so much of how people I knew felt in the late 90s in China. It was a, a three-part work, a, a triptych, three photographs, um, each with finger, finger up like that, one in front of the White House, one in front of the performance center at Hong Kong Harbor, in Hong Kong Harbor, and one in front of Tiananmen, saying, so you can all go and get, you know, knackered. And... He went from that already fairly obstreperous. I want to be in your face. I want to become famous because I'm outspoken and naughty and unpleasant. That's a style in Beijing. It's a very Beijing type thing. But he moved over the years to becoming you know, a very voluble critic who's just, I think, on one level, just his moral outrage. Mm. At, in particular, from my mind, when he became particularly outraged was 
at the, after the Wintran earthquake yes. in 1980. The, the, <coughs> the, the people whose houses and schools and things Many fell down were protesting about indeed, building in the Wintran earthquake, yes, yeah. and they were repressed. Numerous, yeah. numerous school buildings collapsed, in particular school buildings collapsed, recently built school buildings collapsed, killing thousands of And the parents all children. demonstrated, didn't they? And the parents demonstrated against what they call these, um, they called bean curds, bean curds sludge. They're called Beanker Slug Buildings. And Weiwei was just, you know, he, so many people went to Sichuan and were outraged and wanted to help out. You know, it was a major patriotic movement, of the most positive, uplifting kind for people to try and help these, the, the devastated victims. But Weiwei stayed on and saw these, you know, how many kids had died and how many of these buildings had been shoddily constructed. And you know, you could just say, oh, he just, and many people have been very critical of him and saying, oh, he's just another artist wanting to be, keep in front of the media and make himself famous. But he stayed on. He followed some of the families who'd lost children. Like, they only have one child. Their child had been killed in this disaster. And he wanted to help protect and also give, you know, focused publicity on the plight of these people who were told, first told by the authorities not to protest or complain, that they'd be recompensed, but just shut up. Because, in fact, what the issue touched on was not only corrupt building practices, but corrupt provincial government behaviour and corrupt behaviour in Beijing. The type of thing that can bring down governments and some, you know, we just have pink bats in the ceilings, but in yeah. China you've got, you know, and we have deaths here, and it's, it, or at least it brought a minister down. But in China you had an outrage that really should have led to some serious purges. Yeah. Instead it didn't. And what happened was that the, um, the, local, the local people were followed by the police, harassed by them. Weiwei, who wanted to record these outrages, he did make a small film, was beaten up so badly. I saw him last year, and he said, there's still this much blood in my head from the, you know, the beating I had. He'd just come back from Germany where he had brain surgery to try and correct some of the, the damage done to his, his cranium as a result of the beatings. And I mean, I know he had many complaints, and you can read this, a wonderful new book just published by MIT Press in, in, um, in, in Massachusetts. Uh, called Ai Weiwei's blog, Raves and Rants, an interview, what are they called, tweets, um, by Leah Brosi. And it's got a, a record from 2006 right up to 2010. It has his a record of his you know, first cogitations on photography and art and stuff. You don't really want to hear Ai Weiwei talking about photography and art. He doesn't have much interest. Uh, if I may, if I may, he's not the great, he's not, you know, this is not a genius, he's a wonderful, interesting artist, he makes great work, or has other people make great work, has great ideas, but you don't want to hear him talking about modernism and photography, and there's a lot of that stuff, but then as you read on this 300-page book, there's more and more social engagement, and you need us to read this account of the raising, the rising fury of a, of a person whose own family was, I mean, his father, Weiwei's father, Aiting, he was first purged in 1942 in the Yan'an Liberated Zone, the Communist Party. His father was purged during, a, during an attack by Mao and others on a number of writers who dared speak about the communists being corrupt and pursuing too many particular privileges. So Weiwei has been aware of certain yes, problems of the Chinese yeah. system for 70 years. Do the Chinese, I saw Hillary Clinton on television the other night saying, talking about the, I think she was talking about Weiwei actually, but um, referring to the uprisings in the Middle East, which she suggested quite openly, and she was with Chinese people when she, when she said it, that the Chinese authorities are very afraid of. Do you buy that? Um, and that Weiwei might, that his disappearance might have something to do with that? Well, there's one, one the only, um, 
the main article that's been published so far attacking Weiwei by name and great bits of links, uh, written in mainland China but published in Hong Kong, says specifically that Ai Weiwei himself had been encouraging through his tweets and blogs in February, encouraging people to partake or participate in and support the Jasmine uprisings in Shanghai and Beijing. These are these rather inchoate, informal calls for people to go to such and such a theatre at such and such a time and just be there as a sign of solidarity with the Middle East and the uprisings and opposition to authoritarianism. And this article says Ai Weiwei's art has been engaged with politics. He's now gone too far and he's actually involved with political foment. So do you think the Chinese are frightened of the possibility? Of the Chinese Communist Party... All I can, the best way to talk about it is that in the state of China at the moment, because we see many arrests, there have been many arrests of um, lawyers, human rights activists, NGO activists, um, Christian worshippers. There's been a bit of a crackdown, really. There's been a crackdown that I, I would personally trace back. That began, the first inklings of it began in 2006. Mm-hmm. It became really evident in 2008 and has just been ratcheted up ever since. And it's become critical in the last six months. And since Tunisia has really become very often evident. The type of vociferous behaviour of the Chinese authorities, the police actions, I mean, the sudden arrest of journalists and their release, the sudden arrest of, journal- of lawyers beating up and harassment, their, their sudden release going on and on after the last few months, would indicate, and this particularly became evident after Liu Xiaobo, the Chinese um, originally the professor of, of philosophy and Chinese thought, um, who I've known again for many decades, when he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize last year, um, they, react, they, they cracked down in Beijing then, and they've been cracking down ever since. They must, I always say to friends, they must know things we don't know that scare them so much that they think we'd better crush everything. Right. Otherwise, why, otherwise, if... You know, if you have a, a stable... If they is it a tinderbox, do you think? I mean, well, today in the, in the Australian, the Oyu, the Sichuan writer, who um, has been you know, a very active crit- critic of the communist authoritarian style of rule since the 1980s, 80s, he says what you hear often from people, and, and again, it's, it's people who already believe the system should change, there should be radical change, so you don't know, you know, more than... This, these are disgruntled individuals who deal with the underbelly of the society and hear a lot of the outrage complaints from people who feel that they suffer the extraordinary injustices possible within a society in which there are no avenues of redress. He says the Chinese are tinderbox and it could explode at any moment. I, I don't know enough. I simply don't know. All we do know is that the Politburo sitting in Beijing, there's nine men, they're all men, they know stuff that scares them enough yeah. to make them... When the Liu Xiaobo crackdown occurred in October, after October the 8th last year, friends of mine said that the Politburo that same day received reports that there were six provincial headquarters of the party under siege from protesters over land rights and food pollution, this, that, and the other. And they just thought to themselves, all we need is that pack of people internationally speaking about human rights and um, freedom of association, blah, 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 blah linking up with those stupid protesters who have, for, one, uh, for the moment, are temporarily um, having, have issues with our local government authorities. All we need is for this, all this mess to link up oh. and we have a revolution on our hands. So that, but that's an argument that people make. But others will say that China is incredibly stable and that the, the middle class, which is much involved with party prosperity in the main urban centres, is doing fine. Oh. It's a vast complex country. And just the authorities, again, I spent a lot of my time working on Qing dynasty history, it's the last dynasty in China. And at that time, you would have thought, because 
major rebellions began occurring really in the 1790s. The dynasty lasted until 1911, and it, and it collapsed at the point it was transforming itself through political and social reform <laughs> at a rate that was faster than ever before, and that's what led it to its collapse. Now, I have no idea. I mean, and nobody, everyone thought the dynasty would collapse decades before it did, and no one thought it would collapse when it did. Yeah. So yeah. all I can say is nobody's going to get it right, so I have no... <laughs> I can't even work out what happened in the past. <laughs> I'm terribly conscious of the time. Sorry. We're nearly, we're nearly yeah. up to an hour. Um, I always like to know if you'd like to ask questions, and I'm sure perhaps yeah, you have questions. No, well, no, there's so much to say. Um, Does anybody want to ask a question at this? Uh, this is the time. This is the time. Uh, yeah. No, not, not when I was a student, because we had, well, Jocelyn was in the yeah. end. Jocelyn was right. Put up your hand. I'm an American professor at Sydney University. But Jocelyn um, was, was one that has a presence, and, and also was not, would not put up with these people. Um, but we were, we were cl closely monitored. I mean, my favourite particular, well, the main, my favourite moment was one day getting my mail and I discovered somebody else's letter was in my envelope. <laughs> I later would learn through friends who actually investigated this thing exactly what post office in Beijing did the opening of all the letters that went to Beijing for anybody in China. But um, everything that we did had to be, I mean, Jocelyn would, would have to intervene to protect us. And they knew we were under, uh, under the protection of the embassy. And it was really, it really mattered. But to go to, if we wanted to Shen, Shenyang, which is, you know, 12 hours by train outside Beijing, if I wanted to go to Beijing, I had to apply to the Foreign Affairs Office in my the building where I live, who then report to the School Foreign Affairs Office, who then report to the local uh, Bureau of Education, who would then send a formal notification to the Ministry of Education <laughs> in Beijing, which is sent, sent then to the embassy, which would then pass it on to Jocelyn, who was the counsellor in charge of us. The, the key to, to extricating students if they were in difficult circumstances was to tell the Ministry of Education that the ambassador required the presence of the students for a political meeting. refused <laughs> 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 permission. <laughs> and our ambassador at the time was Steve Fitzgerald, and he had the need to run to organise many political meetings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's nice. laughs> no, the trouble came later when I became very friendly with Liu Xiaobo, Dai Xing, I were all these other people. After 1989, there have been many moments when I've been followed by numerous famous mm. people. That's all of us who deal with China. My favourite day, I don't know, favourite, least favourite day being 1990. One would be followed by 15 different people. <laughs> I counted them. <laughs> and Linda is sitting here, much earlier on, had a career of being followed. <laughs> and, that's, and that's not fun because not only you've been followed and it's, you know, you're foreign, nothing's going to happen to you particularly because you get thrown out of track, but everyone you know will be visited, harassed, their files gone into, and their lives made unpleasant. And that's what's horrible. Yeah. I realize that I've been kept cover every aspect of contemporary China, but one aspect which I find notably absent from the conversation today is the rise of 
kind of nationalism. And it's, it's my impression that the combination of the rise of nationalism today with the rise of materialism is the, the magic formula which is saving the continent. What do you have to say? It's, it is one, again, one of these great conundrums. I've just been reading late, lately because I'm preparing something late in the year to preparing to write something about the, um, the anniversary of this year. This year is October, October our October the 10th will be the uh, 100th anniversary of the um, well, the uprising that led to the founding of the Republic of China in 1911, the so-called end of Chinese autocracy, or at least dynastic, well, can't even say dynastic autocracy because Xi Jinping is going to be the next president of China. But anyway, this hundred years of revolution and change in China. And as I'm reading material from the 1890s to 1911, um, the rabid nationalism of that period is so evident. The rabid nationalism of the 1910s and 20s Overwhelming. A very good friend of mine in China, a guy called Xu Jilin at East China Normal University, a professor of intellectual history, has written three large pieces on the, the interconnection between this tradition of sometimes xenophobic but mostly just boisterous nationalism and Chinese cosmopolitanism. It's engaging with the world from the 1911s has been at the very foundation, the very bedrock of so much modern Chinese identity, and. I mean, I went to China in the Cultural Revolution era. The first time I, I encountered my classmates were all ex-Red Guards. They were xenophobic and nationalistic in the extreme. I have yet to encounter a type of vociferous nationalism in China today that actually outstrips that. So for me, I, have a, I understand what you're saying. The contemporary Chinese nationalism has been employed and used by the Chinese Communist Party to great effect since 1989. It was a national education campaign was launched in 1990 called the Patriotic Education Movement, to try and instill in the Chinese youth and people generally an understanding of Chinese essential difference from the rest of the world. Chinese essentialism. And they put billions of dollars have gone into this campaign, and it touches on all forms of media, all forms of textbooks, all forms of public engagement, and has been devastatingly effective. And because of the guided nature of guided Chinese media, that is that the media cannot tell two sides to every story, or three sides before it tells one version of every story. It does mean, it does, it is encouraged the rise of a particular strain of nationalism that is very familiar to us who look back these last hundred years and has devastating, devastating consequences because China as a member of the world community in a way that has never been before is now acting in ways that this nationalism has incredibly negative <coughs> impacts on the global community but at the same time, helping the Communist Party. The problem with the contemporary Chinese nationalist fervor, and it runs, if you read Chinese blogs or tweets, you see a lot of it. That's really, you see really creepy stuff, and really revolting, extreme nationalism. The worst type of redneck stuff you'd ever get in America or Europe, or even the Nazis in Germany. You've got it all in China, type of, that type of vociferous language. But the complicating thing is that the communist authorities and the think tanks, our center works with one of China's leading think tanks, they're sometimes corralled and pushed into to positions by mass demagogu demagoguery and nationalism that they don't want to be put into. Mm. The Communist Party itself is frequently attacked for being not patriotic enough, not pro-China enough, and being far too weak on foreigners, which was an indication for anybody who'd like to see a sudden democratic revolution in China. But what you might get <laughs> could be much worse than yeah, what you have now. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the question. Any more at this point? Yes. I've got a question, but I'll say it right for lunch. 
Thank you. Just a, just a brief question about the role of NGOs in China. Do you think, as a counter to perhaps the, uh, the centralist ideas and the control, that, that that's a way for China to be able to navigate a more democratic China eventually? And I think particularly of environmental NGOs and the appeal to science and how you navigate the ideology with uh, scientific truths. Well, no, it, it has been actually the most, first most famous post um, post Weijing. A Weijing film was very famous. This is not relatively famous. This is in 1979. But the most famous dissident after Weijing film was an astrophysicist of all people, a man by the name of Fun Li Zhu. Wonderful, outspoken, very funny, engaging person. Naturally purged in 19. 87 and then forced into exile in 1989. And he made this very argument. He said, if you want to be part of the world community and you want to really pursue, I mean, the pursuit of China, I've spoken about the nationalism and the Republic of China in the 1910s, but the other element of that discussion is that when this nationalism first reared its ugly head, it also had a positive side, that is that China needs to be a united, strong country that should slot off all this Western imperialist imposed treaties and so on and so forth. That was a, a positive form of patriotism. But at the same time, there arose a discussion that China needed to realize two things. It had to invite to China two gentlemen, two, two serves, two masters. One was Mr. Democracy, Democracy Center, and the other was Sai Center, Mr. Science. And only with these two things would China become a modern polity. And there are scientists in China, and most of the very, very clever people in China, because politics is deadly. Um, the arts and culture can lead to a bit of money-making with a lot of trouble. So most of the very clever people go into the sciences and do think that over time, that science will lead to, well, lead to Lysenkoism, maybe. It could lead to all kinds of scientific control, or it could lead to the rule of engineers, which is China's Politburo now has, what are they, nine out of nine engineers? So no, I don't believe that. That type, so again, a science without it's not leaven, and a scientific engagement not leaven by the humanities and the broader engagement with what we regard as the liberal arts will lead to technocracy that has created the great China we see today. NGOs should be, and there's been discussion in China since 1980, 1990, 1991. The big hot topic for ten years, from 1990 to 2000, was the rise of Chinese civil society and the rise of NGOs, in particular looking at what happened in Eastern Europe and looking at the German, you know, Habermas in thought and so on and so forth. People put all, read these theories into China. The Chinese authorities have been very, these are smart people. The Communist Party, against all odds, an irrational system that can't, shouldn't be able to respond to things it does, has learned to grow and develop. It's learned to ways to deal with NGOs. And they're deadly effective. And so far, there's no evidence that local NGOs, when they, the minute they start actually doing, and I have many friends who work in NGOs in China, the minute they start actually doing something effective, there's a demand that the leadership change, local provincial leaders change, and they're not crushed, they're just brought into line, and they're undermined. Mm -hmm. there, there's, one, there's a wonderful group that actually does, does follow this, most in Chinese and English, run, run by a, a very wonderful Hong Kong writer who lives in Beijing, a guy called Chen Guangzhong, who um, wrote a, a very influential novel band in China, actually, called The Prosperous Age. Um, and he's established an internet-based NGO discussion group called Minzian, that's what this means, um, popular among the people. 
um, or NGO, and it tries to bring together the concerns of NGOs and all the issues from environmental issues to local social justice to housing issues and so on and so forth. And one always, they work locally, but the minute that any of these groups try to coalesce and work together, in particular across provincial or across city lines, the government sees a plot and begins to take action. Right, lots of questions here. We'll, uh, we'll this take another three. I was going to say this is the second last one. <laughs> 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 the last, <laughs> the last <laughs> word for Jane. <laughs> I went to China the first time in 1990, give or take two years, Jim, I can remember when I actually was. By the invitation of the Chinese government, with five other investment bankers, we see the six biggest companies in China. China Vikings, Shanghai, one of other companies, Vetro. And um, it's interesting, any Chinese tour guide or uh, China authority in the Chinese government who lost the question to had the same answer, and that was, what's the view on now? And at that stage, it was 50 50, with 50% right in what he did and 50% wrong. That'll be very nice. Very good. What's the thinking? So, Thirty-seven. It's always been thirty-seven. Right? Thirty-seven. Yeah, yeah. Thirty-seven. Right or wrong? <laughs> <laughs> thirty-seven. Thirty bad. Seventeen right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask the question this week. You probably answered. What is the view now? What is the view of I'll tell you what the view of my um, one of my abiding fascinations is, is because my whole youth was. Completely embroiled with the the, the great, late and great, I think you'd call him the late and great Chairman Mao. Um, actually, after my day, I wrote a book about about crochets of Mao, right. which is a study of how Mao was here for good. How there'd been an attempt in 1978-79. There was a serious period of what they call famous demalification, and there was serious discussion of removing his corpse from that appalling yeah. building in the center of Tiananmen and taking his picture off. Tiananmen Gate. Imagine Tiananmen without that picture. Well, I can't use it because I've seen all the old pictures of the yes. places. We did have Chiang Kai-shek there first. <laughs> he was there for years until they put Mao up to replace him. But um, there were serious debates. And Deng Xiaoping and his others, there's a, there's a fascinating one, never, never publicly, Deng Xiaoping, the Department of Propaganda head at the time, has written a memoir in which he talked about exactly how we debated. If we get rid of it, if we get it all goes, the whole thing is completely, we're all gone. Because sooner or later, the whole edifice, the whole rationale of the People's Republic, the PLA, which Mao founded, the whole thing will just collapse. So how about we keep him and call it Mao Zedong thought, which is, is the crystallization of the wisdom of all of us. That means we can pretend it's anything we want. And reducing rather long arms, because that's a very long argument. But that began in 1980, one, two, and three. That's the party passed the decision Today in China, there's been many transformations and changes, but because of this patriotic education, because of the nature of China's rise internationally, because of the continued use of this wooden language, as it's called in French, long de voir, this stiff language, which is Maoist in style. Mao is regarded as the founding hero of the People's Republic of China, a man responsible, not guilty, responsible of some you know, unfortunate political decisions that led to mass murder. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, his basic aim was to make China a strong, unified, powerful country respected internationally. What do we have now? We have the Chairman Mao's dream that's been achieved, and it's thanks to him 
with a tackle. There are three measures. There's the author of Mao's biography, which says he was 110% wrong. The official informed party view seems to be 70% right, 30% wrong. If you talk to informed academics, it's radar or PKU, it's 92. <laughs> no idea. But uh, going back to one of your earlier points about the Politburo, nine, nine out of nine are engineers. I think we're, we're seeing, we're, and they're probably, they're probably uh, uh, Chinua engineers. Yeah, um, there seems to be a, a shift going on, and there's an acceptance of the institution across the street, PKU, um, as having something to contribute. So, the arrival of what we would call liberal arts and, and that side in the leadership seems to be, be a, an important important process of change that is perhaps going on here. I'd love to believe that. Um, the, the real expert on this particular subject, a guy called Bill Andreas, has written a wonderful book that came out last year called Red Engineers, which is a study of the rise from the 1950s of Tsinghua University and its impact on Chinese leadership and nearly all the leaders are from Tsinghua University. Um, PKU would love to think it will have that influence. Um, Joel, who's now visiting um, Sydney University, the China Research Centre at Sydney University, David Goodman, his calculation is the next wave of leaders, and now it's really time to be worried, will be financiers and hedge funds. <laughs> no this is what the government is now moving towards. But in America, one of the reasons the US and China have such conflicts, you've got China run by engineers and America run by lawyers. Well, you would think, well, you think, yeah. But, the basis of communication. No, indeed. But, you know, when they're all lawyers and, and bankers, and merchant bankers, <laughs> wow, they'll be able to chat very happily. What are, what are the things that, I mean, our, our centre is very interested in. We're working with a colleague who's been in front of the room here, Kathy Bell at New South Press. We want to we'll start publishing next year a series called Thinking China, a series of small books, which we hope will showcase some of the the people who we, I mean, again, in China, the public concept of public intellectual has been around and actually is very common in the 30s and 1940s and destroyed and crushed for many years, reappeared in the late 80s. And there was a list of 150 public intellectuals published in China a year and a half ago, which became a hit list for the government. So it's very unfortunate. Best not to name people. But there are wonderfully interesting, there's public writers like Han Han, of course, a wonderful commentator who's spoken out on the IOSR. But then there's many serious intellectuals like Mao Haijian, the famous Qing historian, Xu Jilin, the intellectual historian I mentioned in the night, Mao Shu many others, hundreds of these fascinating figures, who despite the repression of people like Weiwei or overt um, oppression of various figures who get, really get caught in the government's crawl, there are those who contribute to public debate and expand the realm of discussion in China today, writing in the Chinese media. And we hope to introduce some of their work to, to English only reading audiences. But that, what's so weird in China is that you have a very repressive government mechanism. You've got the purge going on at the moment that's very targeted. It's not a good old Maoist purge where everybody can go down. It's very, very specific. It does also educate people to be quiet and be very careful. 
But there is a whole civil society that's not really a civil society that's blossomed and grown among the, in the academic world, among, among commentators, among economic specialists, among IR specialists, among people in the public realm on TV and so on and so forth. So it does exist and is there. They just don't quite have the latitude. If they had that little bit, that crucial element, it's actually in the Chinese constitution called freedom of speech, then you would have this extraordinary instant burgeoning of highly intelligent, highly voluble, highly engaged, sometimes very conflicted, but very well-informed opinion. It's there already. Mm -hmm. Right, I'm, I'm going to finish off. Do I need the mic? No, you don't. No, not really. I've been with that. Basically, I, Jeremy and I have been in conversation, except it seemed for my question, uh, he was in New York and I was in hospital and we sort of followed each other. <laughs> <laughs> and finally got together and had a long talk in New York. And the question that I had for him was what to do about our way. Is there anything that we can do that might uh, influence um, the outcome uh, in one way or another? Because he was the first scab, um, uh, recipient of, of our grant awards and I have been friendly with him, not like Jeremy, uh, for all those years, but certainly quite an intensive uh, friendship since he was an artist in residence for three weeks uh, across the road in our um, artist in residence or scholar uh, in residency cottage. And Ryan and I had had long discussions with him about South Africa and um, the uh, political repression that uh, we indirectly, because of the colour of our skins, but many others uh, experienced under the apartheid and the parallels and the kind of approaches that the apartheid government had used in South Africa vis-à-vis um, the Chinese government's approach and so on. So we had lots of heartfelt discussions with him about and politics. Animal and animal rights. Brian's reminding me he uh, had a whole colony of cats, uh, particularly in his uh, uh, complex. Yes, very much so. And uh, in China, where really animals, I think, would come out at the bottom, would I be right, Jeremy, of the hierarchy, people worrying about, uh, you know, suffering and human rights. Uh, he was even preoccupied with that. So we found a lot in common. And I felt and still feel a deep sense of responsibility towards him, knowing from our South African and our South African experience that there's really very little we can do. So I tracked Jeremy down through Hawaii to New York, and we had a long, heartfelt conversation on the phone where uh, Jeremy said to me at that time, look, and that's what I expected. You can sign petitions, you can put out your hands, you can uh, write letters, you can contact your local politician. There's nothing that will change that. They simply won't change. And I don't like, uh, and I really knew the answer before I asked, but I felt that I needed confirmation from an expert, which I'm far from being. So um, I thought then, how can we mark his disappearance in some way? And this is something that we haven't talked about because uh, actually Donna, Donna Meredith, who's standing there now, general manager, I've been struggling with this idea, who came up with something that um, I'd like your opinion on, and maybe we can just share it informally, and Jeremy and Margaret's opinion on it too, and Linda and the others here. And that is, if we mark, uh, have a night for our way way, which was our, was my intended uh, kind of uh, gesture, and I knew it was only going to be a gesture more for me than for him, because who else was it going to help, really? But just I believe in marking moments. If we marked a moment, a night for our way way, and we had a 
number of people speaking about Our Weiwei and his contribution both to art and to social change in China, um, that would be fine. But if we open it up to the media, which is what say, we yes. wanted to do, then the media, of course, takes it off and interprets it in its own way. And there's a lot of criticism of Khan. I don't know if you saw Elizabeth Farrelly's article. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that kind. And therefore, um, you know, it builds into a kind of criticism of China by certain journalists' campaign. We are doing at the end of next year a, a show um, of Chinese contemporary art put together by a Swiss collective called Ulysse, which is in uh, October 2012, in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery, which sits just next to Parliament House there in Canberra. And I felt that if we uh, stated our position as being anti the Chinese government and pro Abe way that we would put the National Court Gallery uh, as, where I sit on the board in an awkward position vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, I didn't want to create waves <coughs> that would affect people who weren't making the choices I was making. So everybody felt uncomfortable. If we didn't have the media, then, you know, what was the point? If we didn't have the media, it would get out of our control. And there was all of that sort of questioning. And Dolly came up with the idea that I'd like you all to think about and perhaps share some thoughts with me if you like, not now because we'll have to stop. And that is of having a session on um, political repression and shutting down freedom of speech, particularly within the context of intellectuals, public intellectuals, and so on, in a more general sense. With Weiwei and China just part of the overall discussion. If we can bring William Kentridge out, we could talk about it from a South African point of view. Um, he's clearly, he's a very famous, for those of you who don't know, South African uh, artist who's on the international stage now, and whose parents were both, they live in London now, his parents were both uh, anti-apartheid lawyers, his father eventually went down, and very courageous people. So I thought if we broadened the discussion, and talked about this kind of thing in more general terms, obviously bringing China in in a substantial way, but not exclusively about China. This doesn't only happen in China. It just so happens that such a huge, you know, and powerful uh, force in the world today that maybe that would be the way whereby we could bring journalists in without offending, you know, the very people who need to engage with China and and want to have a nuanced relationship with China rather than. Um, you know, enemy or friend. What, what, just can you comment just briefly, briefly, Jeremy, on that idea? <laughs> 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 and Dollar mentioned to me. Yes, as she mentioned it. I said, so I hope Bill Henderson will be invited. Yes, yes. And Kevin Rudd, you can talk about the. We, well, we thought we'd invite Kevin, but I think he's. One of Kevin's very bad moves. Yeah, his political position might uh, make it difficult for him to come. Kevin. Well, we can certainly ask him, no problem. But uh, you think that by broadening it, we're listening? Well, I mean, one of the fascinating things about the Chinese, one denunciation of where it's been published is that it uh, castigates him for drawing politics into art. Mm. And the Communist Party itself has, throughout its history in China, been an agitprop 
arts organisation using public life, public intellectuals and the arts to further the aims of a progressive society. Mm. So for them to suddenly start making other way for confounding art and politics is mm. truly rich. So art and politics is just a great topic. Yeah, yeah, just that. Sorry. And you, I just think that if you want to avoid being accused of being anti-China... It's only for the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah, I, I know, I know. <laughs> but in that sense, your commemoration of Ai Weiwei as an artist yes. is, I think, Jeremy might... I, I want to know Jeremy whether yeah. he agrees, but I think that that and the Chinese official view is annoying but appropriate to what you're doing. If you broaden it out and make China, uh, you know, in this event, there's China, there's South Africa, there's yes, political yes, repression. Yes. That actually gets you into more danger of being accused of inappropriate political agitation. I think that if you want to commemorate Ai Weiwei, you can yeah. Yes. yeah, I think that it's from my standpoint. If those are your concerns, yeah. Although it's a fascinating idea, yeah. If those are your concerns, I would do an Ai Weiwei night. Well, the reason I can do an Ai Weiwei night without any problem. If we don't bring the media in, but once even you, if you bring the media in, you have done an eye wave. I mean, I don't know what you think. What's about. the problem with having the media in? Well, because they then have to be they see it. They, what the media <laughs> will talk about yeah. is our way way and having such a shocking time, which I'm sure he is. And being tortured the way. And you haven't anything about Ai Weiwei, and you have media colleagues work here, and, they, and you don't want to talk about the political aspect of what's going on. Then what, what are you doing? No, no, you're talking about the political thing, but you're talking about Ai Weiwei as opposed to. But it's not going to happen. You can't, yeah. you can't do that. But yeah. the tape consensus on this. Well, Tate has got a big banner saying release Ai Weiwei because they have a show of his on at the moment. Who has? Tate Martin. Oh, Tate Martin. Yeah. And the Guggenheim has lost a big position. Your, your concerns are right about the National Portrait Gallery, yeah, which is somewhat different than a national a institution. Yeah, yeah, it's a might I don't know. I don't know the politics of that. Yeah. Because Jim's on the board. Yeah. And then when I'm going to speak Sherman. But you're, you're, you're speaking as Sherman. You're not I speaking know, as the National Portrait Gallery. It is awkward, though, Margaret. I've spoken to them there. And we also don't know at this stage. I mean, I do believe that the Chinese, this, the authorities have in the past. They do, they can decide that, okay, everybody who's decided to. Egregiously support our way where will now be banned yeah. from coming to China. Easy, yeah. They can, they yeah. might, they might make something. I don't know. And you just have to be, if that should be in your calculation. Mm. If that, that is, then that's fine. I mean, I'm never worried about the end. I think the portrait gallery is that if they are all bad. Guys, let's stop there. Yes. Thanks, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you.